hear God's word. 1 John chapter 5, picking up in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, we shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And now that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him, we know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write, it, write these eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Um, those of you who know my kids, uh, you know, that you know that they have a tendency to, to grow, like really be obsessed about particular things. And I wonder where they got that from, Sarah. <clears throat> no, everybody, that's kidding, I'm kidding. Everybody knows that, uh, that that is a trait they most certainly got from me. Um, you know, right now, it's, I, in fact, I went to a parent-teacher conference this past week, and, uh, you know, his teacher, one of, our, one of our son's teachers says, man, he is just absolutely obsessed with Top Gun. Um, you know, he's got his, his flight, his bomber jacket he wears to school, his aviators, um, you know, others, other of my kids are obsessed with superheroes and others obsessed with sports. And, you know, this time of year, this fall, as we think about fall festival, and, um, you know, I, I want I to say Halloween, but I know I might get persecuted from that uh, in this church. I, I don't know. Reformation. How about that? Ref so, uh, you know, but, but you go to Target. You know, you go to Walmart. In fact, we were in Costco the other day, and what do you see? There's displays of costumes, right? And these costumes uh, are doing nothing but stir in my kids. They're thinking, they've been thinking for months about what their costumes may be, and they ask over and over and over, Dad, have you ordered, Mom, have you ordered our costumes yet? Will you order our costumes? Yes, I promise we will do that. You know, hours later, hey, have you ordered our costumes yet? You know, just keep asking. Um, you know, they want to know, they want to have assurance that mom and dad are going to make sure they get their costumes in time for the fall festival. You know, assurance, these are things that we all love. These are all things that we, you know, we long for in life. You know, when we get older, 
the desire for assurance gets a little more grown up, doesn't it? Uh, you know, we want to make sure that we have good homeowner's insurance just in case, you know, a tornado comes through and tears it apart. We have to rebuild. We want to make sure we've got good insurance. Um, you know, if we, you know, we want to make sure we can provide for our family just in case, God forbid, something were to happen to one somebody. We want to make sure we've got good health uh, or good life insurance. I'm thinking about you, Summer Norman. I just talked to Summer Norman this morning. I know she's about to take a test on being able to, to write those kinds of policies and to sell them. But, you know, the reality is um, the same is true for our spiritual life. You know, we want to have assurance that we are, in fact, Christians. We want the security of knowing that that we are going to be good when we move on from this life. And in our verse, in our, in our first verse, this whole section, this final section of 1 John, he's going to point out the reason to why he wrote this book. He reads, he, as, as, as he wrote in uh, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is telling us that the purpose of his writing this book is the promotion of a Christian's assurance of salvation. Their assurance that, that they truly know God. Now we've heard verses like this before. You know, a couple of years ago we preached through the gospel of John. And John chapter 20 verse 31, John explains... Uh, why he wrote the gospel of John. Let me just read that for you. That is John 20, verse 31. But these are written uh, so, that I, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is saying, I write this gospel not simply in interest of history, I write you this gospel with, the gospel with with really a gospel purpose in view. It is my desire that, that you, having heard these things, will believe in Christ. So John wrote the gospel of John, writes it so that people will believe. Now listen again, then, right next to it, what he says in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not writing 1 John so that you might believe, although that is our prayer, right? I'm sure that's an implicit prayer that he has. He's not writing that you may believe. He's writing 1 John so that uh, those who already believe in the Son of God. He's writing it for those, for those individuals. He's writing to them. Why? That they may know that they have eternal life. John wants Christians to have a robust assurance of their salvation, their saving knowledge of God, a robust assurance of their salvation. John sees assurance as important. And so he writes this letter in order to strengthen and give them, to strengthen their faith, to give them more assurance. And here's something to recognize about assurance, and really this is my first point, while assurance is important, it is not automatic. 
And it is something that we are to cultivate. John wants you to hear the truth. And then he wants you to believe the truth. And then he wants you to live the truth. And that's what 1 John really was about. Uh, you know, not simply saying it, not simply knowing it, but, but living out the truth. And then he wants you to be assured of that truth. And so John is telling you here, I've written this to people who are already believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing this letter to you who already believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that they may be assured of salvation. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Christians who've said, I hope I make it. I'm just worried that I might not be a Christian. I'll never forget there was a season... Um, my freshman year of college, and it was really the first time that I ever sat under gospel, I would say expository preaching. I wouldn't say it was super gospel rich, it was more law heavy at the time. Uh, but I can remember leaving every single Sunday. Um, it was good, faithful preaching, and he was preaching expositionally through the text, but I would leave every single Sunday just like, just super convicted, which is good. Conviction is a good thing, but I left with no hope. And every week, I mean, I would just for a full season, uh, I can remember having conversation after conversation with my friends and my family, just riddled with doubt of my salvation. And John is saying, this is why I'm writing these things to you, so that you may know that you are a child of God. And one of the great testimonies of the realities of Scripture is that so much of Scripture is taken up with assuring Christians of their salvation. You know, God in His infinite wisdom, because He is the ultimate author of the Word, knows that He is going to have precious children who struggle with assurance. And so in His Word, He writes things that were meant for them from before the foundations of the world. And this is one of the great testimonies of the truths of Scripture. But John wants us to see that assurance is vital to the stability and the energy of the Christian life and service. And so he wants to do, um, he wants to do what he can to encourage us in growing in a robust assurance of salvation. And so there's the first thing. That's what John wants to promote here in the writing of his letter. Amidst all the soul-searching that we've done through 1 John, amidst all the self-examination that we've done in 1 John, he's saying, my purpose is not to discourage you. My purpose is to encourage you. My purpose is not to raise doubts in your heart. My purpose is to confirm faith and to give you assurance in the Christian life. There's the first thing. Now let's look at the second thing. You'll see in verses 14 through 17, John is going to talk about the impact of assurance in the area of prayer. As we pray in accordance with God's will, and as we pray with assurance that we know God and that, and that we are His children, it transforms us in the practice of prayer. And so you might be asking, 
like what, honestly, what does prayer do? And there are some who say that prayer changes God's mind. And there are others that say, no, 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 no. Prayer changes things. It changes circumstances. It changes, and then, you know, it changes the way things are. And then there are others that say, no, um, prayer it really only changes you. And so, which is it? Does God's mind get changed by prayer? Do things get changed by prayer? Or do we get changed by prayer? Well, in prayer, we don't change God's mind. That would be really a frightening thing to think about. A frightening thought that, 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 that somehow I could change God's mind and that my individual finite sinful will could, 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 uh, you know, could really at any, in any way, any discrete point in the universe change the will of God. Uh, if your prayers could change God, then he would no longer, he would cease to be God. You would be. Clearly, we don't change God's mind. In prayer, we don't change God's mind. And, and we don't change things by ourselves, nor do we merely come in line with God's will. But in prayer, we do become God's instruments to affect his will. And thus, in his grace, God ordains us to work out his plan with the use of our prayer, of our prayers. John is saying that one of the important places where assurance impacts us is the practice, is, is inside the practice of prayer. Our boldness in prayer will be very much tied to our assurance of salvation. And all of this leading to the second point is that God uses prayer to cultivate assurance in our lives. God uses prayer to cultivate assurance in our lives. Listen, prayer, it shapes us. Prayer strengthens us. And God uses it to give us confidence in him. He gives us confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it gives us assurance that, that we are his children. Your father, think about this, your father in heaven desires to commune with you in prayer. He wants you to approach him with boldness and with faith. And, and he will strengthen your assurance through it. I love what Tim Keller says about prayer in his book entitled Prayer. Conversation with God leads to an encounter with God. Prayer is not only the way we learn what Jesus has done for us, but also is the way we daily receive God's benefits. Prayer turns theology into experience. Through it, we sense his presence and receive his joy, his love, his peace, and confidence. I think confidence is important for assurance. And thereby, we are changed in attitude, behavior, and character. Listen, prayer shapes us because it's by prayer we encounter God. It is in prayer that the Spirit testifies that we are, it testifies with our spirit that we are in fact children of God. 
And to use the language from Romans chapter 8, and if we are children, then we are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, right? The, the Spirit makes us cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit, you know, this, the Lord works through this Spirit-driven prayer to bring about assurance in the Christian life. And listen, there is a direct correlation to prayer and assurance. Which means there will be a direct correlation to lack of prayer and lack of assurance in the Christian faith. And, 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 and prayer is a way that we commune with God. And when we commune with God, we grow in assurance. But notice this. John definitely wants us to have confidence in prayer, but he doesn't want us to be presumptuous. So he says this, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And listen to how he puts it in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John speaks as if uh, it's almost past tense. You know, he, if, if we've asked him, we have it. But, but notice he makes it clear that we are not to be presumptuous in our prayers. We're always to pray how? Your will be done. Whatever we ask according to his will, John says, John is writing to us be bold in our prayer. He's wanting us to be assured in prayer. And he also is wanting us to, to always pray in accordance with the will of God. He's talking to us here about the Christian assurance that, 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 that God will answer our prayers. We can pray in faith that God wants to hear our prayers and he actually desires to answer our prayers. John wants us to to be bold and confident that God will hear our prayers. John wants us to be totally confident that God will hear our prayers. And so he even speaks of them as being answered as we ask them. We have what we ask. Now that sounds, I know it may sound, some of you like a license for some people to say, well... You know, maybe they say, Lord, you know, we're going to speak it uh, into being by faith. But notice what John says here. As we ask according to his will. John wants us to have confidence in prayer, but he doesn't want us to be presumptuous. So he wants us to pray boldly, but always according to his will. He says in verse 14, we are always to pray, your will be done. Jesus demonstrated this, did he not? When he tells his disciples in the Lord's Prayer how they are to pray. Remember, your kingdom come, your will be done. Or thy kingdom come, if that didn't make sense to you. Thy will be done. Jesus, by his own example shows us that, that we are always to pray in accordance to God's will. And John, 
had heard Jesus teach this. And perhaps he had even heard him frequently pray this way. And so John says to these Christians, pray boldly. Be assured of God's answers to prayers which are in accordance to his will. But always pray boldly in accord with his will. In accord with the will of God. Is that something you voice in your prayers? Is that something you voice often? Lord, you know, yes. You know, Lord, we petition for these things, whatever it may be. But let your will be done. Let your will be done. Then God says something. Very hard uh, and can be somewhat confusing in verses 16 and 17. Now, don't get, don't get confused by what he says. What John is doing is giving us an example of how you are to pray for God's will in a specific situation of intercession. Okay? You're, you know, you're interceding for someone else. In this case, the case of somebody who's fallen into sin, John knows that we ought to be interceding for one another, right? When someone who has fallen into sin, we ought to go before the Lord, interceding before the Lord for, on their behalf, Lord, pleading with him, Lord, turn him, turn her back towards uh, you and away from sin. That's how we ought to be praying for one another. And John says... If we will pray in accordance with God's will, that that brother will turn from sin. God will hear that prayer. But then he adds this statement. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, to be totally honest with you. Commentators, you know, for hundreds of years have wrestled with what this means. Uh, what in the world is John talking about when he says, a sin which leads unto death? You know, is he talking about a specific sin that is beyond forgiveness? Is he talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Is he talking about apostasy? Um, and so, again, good commentators have wrestled with John, with what John is saying. But, but I think it's, it's simply this. John is writing in a context where people have renounced their faith. They have deconstructed, to use, you know, 2020 language, 2023 language, right? 2022. Um, they've turned their backs on Jesus as, uh, you know, on, on, on the Jesus uh, of the apostles' teaching. And they've left the church. And John is saying... If you see a brother falling into sin, pray for him. Intercede for him. God in his mercy will turn him from his sin. But don't pray. Lord, even though that person renounces Jesus, save him anyway. Because that's never in accordance to God's will. God doesn't save those who renounce Jesus. Now immediately your question, you know, you may have a question, well... Does that mean that you can't pray for anybody who is an act of rebellion against Jesus Christ? Well, that's, that's another question for another time. 
Uh, that's not what John is talking about here. John is saying, don't pray to God to do that. Don't, don't say, Lord, save that person apart from Jesus Christ, even though that person doesn't trust in Jesus Christ, save them anyway. He's not saying that. Now, you might say, nobody ever prays like that. And I would argue, yes, they do. In our culture, in the Bible Belt South, where everybody was saved multiple times at VBS, right? I remember talking to a very godly Christian woman one time whose son had rejected Jesus Christ, and she refused to believe that he was not a Christian because once upon a time, uh, he had prayed a prayer. Now, my friends, you cannot expect those who reject Christ to be received by Christ as if they had never rejected him all, at all. And John is simply saying, when we intercede for one another, don't intercede and ask God to do what he doesn't say he will do in his word. Pray in accordance with his will. I'm certain everyone here has friends and family members who are loved. You love them with all of your heart. Um, and you want them to know Jesus Christ. And John is saying that even in those circumstances... We are always to pray in accordance to God's will. What if God is, uh, that, that God is going to save? He's going to save the way he says he's going to save. And what he says in his word is that he will draw them to faith in Christ and not by any other way. And so we pray that God would save just as he says that he will in his word. And that's what John is talking about. The Lord's going to hear those prayers which are in accordance to his will. He's, he's going to turn back sinners through the use of your intercessory prayers. But he's going to do it according to his will. He's going to do it on his timetable. But we plead with the Lord. We plead with the Lord to do so. And we do it in faith. We pray with much boldness. But, but it's always voiced with, Lord, your will be done. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, we've talked about this before. Uh, we've talked about this before in this series, even. Uh, the Christian, the born-again Christian, will struggle with remaining sin in their life. You know, we, we, you know, we may be freed from the bondage of sin, but the presence of sin is still a reality. The, the born-again Christian will struggle with the remaining sin in their lives. However, he makes it clear, just like he has many times before in this book, the born-again Christian will not make a practice of sinning. This is, again, willful and deliberate rejection of the truth. Not a sinless life but a life that through time will sin less. Now, how do we know this? I think it's easy to get hung up on this part of the text, you know, that Christians will not make a practice of sinning. We will not sin. But, but how, how is this done? This doesn't happen by our own efforts. 
This doesn't happen by us pulling ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps, right? By us white-knuckling, you know, uh, the remaining sin out of our, our lives. Sanctification, yes, it happens, uh, you know, through effort. It is an actual effort that we take, but it is a grace-driven effort. But how do we know it is a grace-driven effort? Look at the second half of verse 18. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Who is the one born of God that protects the children of God? Who's the one interceding for us right now as we speak? John is saying, Jesus. It's always been Jesus. The Spirit of Christ is convicting us of our remaining sin and compelling us with new inclinations to put to death the deeds of the body, to wage war against the remaining sin in our lives. And, and I just, I love this reminder. He, he tags on there at the end of verse 18. Listen, Satan can't touch us. He's no match for our king. Our king has crushed his head and is continuing to crush his head and he's not yet done. He's still grinding that heel. You know, he's, and he's grinding it in. Our king, our king is the one protecting us. Our king is the one interceding before us before the father and his spirit is driving us away from prayer his spirit is interceding with our spirit that we are children of god bringing assurance verse 19 we know that we are from god and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one listen if we are born again if we have repented and, and put our faith in jesus christ then we can have assurance that we are children of God. Therefore, we are God's children. We are his chosen ones. God is in the business of protecting and keeping his children. And Satan has no power over you. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Who is responsible for giving us an understanding of the true gospel? The text says it right there. Is it our own strength, our power, our resolve, our own understanding? Is it our own sensitivity to spiritual things? No. It's only by the sovereign will of a triune God. The Father choosing, the Son winning and securing, and the Spirit drawing, giving the gift of faith. This is the only way someone is saved. John is, saved, is giving us these truths so that we may have assurance. It's meant to give us confidence. It's meant to stir us to joy and worship because only He could do it. We can't do it ourselves. And then he ends this letter in a seemingly strange way. Does he not? 
Verse 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Now you might be thinking, again, this is sort of a strange ending to this letter, which, you know, which was intended about bringing assurance uh, of our salvation to the believer. And you would say, really? An imperative command to keep ourselves from idols? Uh, but when you stop to think about it, in light of the previous verse, John knew, just as Calvin knew, you know, many years later, that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. While today we might not fall prey to constructing the golden calf and worshiping it in the wilderness, like the Israelites did in, uh, right after the Exodus, we are in danger of many different types of idols. Idolatry is anything you love and enjoy and pursue more than God, more than Christ, who is, just as we saw, verse 20, is the true God of eternal life. Idols say that we, that we, uh, idols are basically telling us that they are true when God says only Christ is true. Idols say that, that we will give life when God says only Christ can provide life. Your children, your children's success, your children's sports, your spouse, your desire for a spouse, your desire for a bigger house, your desire for a different job, your desire for your own self-righteousness. Any effort to earn our, our own salvation creates idols of, of, of necessity. If we make any of these things our fundamental confidence in life, then those things become idols which we look to instead of Christ for our salvation and ultimate sense of fulfillment and joy and assurance. You want to lack assurance? Put your hope in something that's fleeting. You know, something of the created world that will disappear. You want assurance? Set your eyes on Jesus. You know, it's, you know, it's possible to scrupulously keep the, nine, the other nine commandments as a way to earn our salvation. When in reality, we actually break the first commandment with your good deeds. You know, where God, uh, where God works, all, where good works are, are all done in service to an idol as a way of avoiding Christ our Savior. You know, idols promise but can never deliver. Uh, whereas God says Christ both provides and delivers. So John is reminding us to guard ourselves against idols of power, of control, Comfort, applause, position, respect, pleasure. Your heart will never be satisfied and at rest with any of these little false gods. Only Christ truly and eternally satisfies. Jesus said it perfectly. Whoever drinks the water, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Ever. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. John 4, 14. And this is our final point. 
assurance of salvation is most cultivated when we set our eyes on Jesus Christ. Listen, this is why we preach the way we do here. This is why we sing the songs that we sing here. We think Jesus is your only hope in life and death. Nothing brings assurance like taking our eyes off the created things in the world and focusing on the only one who can bring ultimate joy in eternal life. Look away from your own self-salvation projects and look to Christ. The risen Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the true God, and the only God who gives you eternal life. And you can have certainty. All you have to do is believe in his name. The scriptures say, everyone, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He and he alone is the true God and he wants you to find assurance. Look to him and away from yourself and assurance can be cultivated in your life. And remember, this sermon series is about helping you remember and see that you are a child of God. Let's pray.